The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, January 2nd, 2020, the Princess and the Poop edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And it's our annual call-in show. Our first show of the new year. We're so excited. We're all gathered in our respective studios, except Marsha, who's calling in from an exotic <laughs> locale on the road. I am under a coat. It sounds cozy under there. <laughs> we have a full docket of Is It Sexist questions to get to today. Thank you to everybody who sent them in. Your questions were particularly juicy and thought-provoking this year. Uh, and I think we're going to get to a good chunk of them today. And listeners, if you like this Is It Sexist discussion type thing, please note that in every episode we answer one of these Is It Sexist questions for our Slate Plus listeners. And you can join Slate Plus uh, for just $35 a year for the first year. Or you can even take a two-week trial period by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus. And this week we'll save one of our questions just for Slate Plus members. We took one of your excellent questions. Our conversation got a little heated and involved a comprehensive evaluation of curse words. We are going to decide whether it's sexist to call someone a douche or a douchebag. Here's a little snippet from that conversation. Maybe enema would be another good insult. Hmm, enema, yeah. Everybody... Is that funny enough for no. you, Jan? <laughs> it, I mean, it's funny, but in a, not, not really as... Yeah. You're such a fucking enema. Nah, I'm not feeling it. (laughs) And that's going to be a good one. That's the question we're answering for Slate Plus members this week. Let's get into it. Our first question comes from an anonymous listener whose likeness June will impersonate. Yes. June, take it away. So this anonymous listener asks, is it sexist for husbands slash male partners not to have social media accounts? This question may have come from uh, a woman who is married to a man who has only a neglected LinkedIn profile and who loves to tell people that he doesn't do social media, which is, I guess, why all his cousins message her on Facebook if they want to get in touch with him. For that matter, all his family members Facebook message or even email her and ask her to ask him stuff because you know how rubbish he is at responding to emails, they say. Is it sexist? All right. Who wants to take a first crack at this? I'll start. I think it is sexist because the social media management for a family is akin to situations in which the female partner remembers everyone's birthday, knows the shoe sizes of all the kids. It's something about the way that the social life of the family is often feminized and so I think the um, the posturing of like, I'm too busy or too interesting or too deep for social media, and that's my wife's domain, is sexist. I agree. I think it's sexist. I think it falls under um, kind of like making the, the woman the secretary, the administrative assistant of the family. And uh, that's very bothersome to me. And I also wonder if there's some element of... 
um, jealousy or possessiveness that kind of goes into it as well. Like if the guys, if men stay off of social media, maybe they won't be tempted to, you know, slide in someone's DMs or something like that. And, you know, that kind of. <laughs> so, so you think maybe the the woman partner is asking, is telling the husband like, oh, you don't need to have a social media because they don't want him to stray? I think sometimes that is part of it, yes. And I think that sometimes men also are just like, let me not even tempt myself. So you just handle (laughs) all this kind of, you know, all of that stuff. And also it's just a way for them, uh, for some of them to get away from that responsibility of managing birthdays and managing the connection to their family, their extended family and things like that. So I think there are a lot of different elements that come into play. But bottom line, it is sexist. Yeah, I also think it doesn't necessarily just apply to couples where the the man doesn't have a social media account. I think any division of labor that has the woman being the one to field messages from family members, be in charge of, you know, sending out photos of the family and keeping in touch is a, a well-known and common sexist division of labor. Um and on social media, it's not necessarily just about the DMing with family members. I think it also extends to commenting and liking on other mm. people's photos, which for some people is an important part of keeping up family relationships. And also knowing about what's going on in people's lives so that when you run into the cousin you haven't seen in a year or an old friend and maybe something has happened to them, they've broken up with their partner, they left their job you are not completely in the dark because, you know, they think you know because they've posted on social media. And so you would be possibly doing damage to your friendship if you start talking to them like you don't know what's going on in their lives. And I I think a good rule of thumb for somebody with a question like this is if your partner would feel out of the loop if he was single and didn't have social media, then yes, it's sexist if he's depending on you to keep him in the loop. Interesting. Now, I am not here to defend the male gender. However, I do have something of a slightly contrasting opinion here, because since this question was based around social media, I don't think anybody like has an obligation to be on like Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Like it's okay to to say, you know, social media is just not for me. I really don't enjoy it. It aggravates me. It makes me feel bad. I'm just not going to do it. That's an okay point of view. That's an okay attitude. Obviously, though, as everybody has said, what's not okay is just opting out of being uh, a responsible communicator. And I will say that my partner, who is not a man, but still uh, doesn't do social media except Instagram because she's an artist. But she still, however, is much better at communication than I am because she like keeps in touch with friends and family and even like uses the telephone, which I can barely <laughs> even imagine. And so it's it's like, let's not even... For once, amazingly, let's not even blame the social media. It's not about social media, I think, as as maybe you said, Nicole. It's about just being responsible and doing your bit. So you don't have to be on Instagram. You don't have to be on Facebook. But you do have to communicate or just not push the work off on someone else without at least having a conversation about that. I think you raise a good point because there's also the fact that, you know, Facebook... Twitter, uh, I, I don't know about TikTok, but you know Instagram is owned by Facebook. These are companies that are making oh, money yeah. off of people participating Absolutely. in them, and uh, you know trawling for data off mm-hmm. of them. And 
engaging in possibly definitely unethical behavior in terms of allowing foreign adversaries to influence the political process and, uh, you know, generally poisoning the discourse. So, so yeah, maybe, maybe there's a principled stance to be taken in terms of opting out of social media or a stance, just like you said, June, that, you know, is I'm going to protect my mental health by not engaging in these platforms. But in that case, I think if one person is still doing the bulk of the family communication labor, you the person who's not on social media has an obligation to tell those family members, hey, I've noticed that you've been communicating through my wife or mm-hmm. my girlfriend. I miss actually talking to you. Can you text me yeah, instead? Yeah. I mean, the other part of this that, um, that you know, you, the question I didn't ask about, but it, I have heard that these days a lot of really important business that is not optional, like things like what schools are doing and what you know, how uh, volunteer, you know, compulsory volunteering opportunities are communicated about happens on Facebook. Uh, so I think that th- that's another aspect that often these, these social media things are not actually social media. They're now, you know, the way that schools communicate or the way that, I don't know, other entities communicate. So as much as I would like to think of all this as being optional, I know that for a lot of people, it actually is not because that's how your school tells you about what you need to do for your kids. So if you're not on there, you're not getting that information. I love the idea of a compulsory volunteering opportunity. (laughs) Sounds really threatening. I believe they all are. (laughs) Um, As our Slate Plus members know, usually we assign each sexist question a 1 to 10 rating from not sexist at all to most sexist thing on the planet. This week, we're not doing that for each question because it would take us forever. So we're just going to give it a simple thumbs up or thumbs down. Does that work? It totally does. Because, you know, typically we're super scientific, but this week we're not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, that's not to say that our judgments are any... any less infallible, you know, Absolutely the, not. these are still binding decisions. It's sure. just a pass fail rather than yeah. a yeah. numerical grade. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so husbands or male partners not having social media accounts, thumbs up or thumbs down? Is it sexist? Thumbs up, sexist. Yes, sexist, thumbs up. Thumbs up, sexist. Same. All right. This is unanimously sexist. Husbands and male partners get thee to Facebook. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel terrible saying that. All right, our next question. This one truly sent me into an internet wormhole. It came from the phone. Let's listen. Hi, this message is for the wave. Is it sexist that men take longer to go poop than women? This is a scientifically proven fact. If you ask five or 10 or 15, Women who are married to men about this, they will tell you, yes, my husband takes 25, 30 minutes to do number two, and I take two to five minutes. These men, they disappear upstairs with their iPhones and their laptops sometimes and hang out up there for half an hour when women have to go number two. They go into the bathroom, they take care of business, they come out and get on with the day. So that's my question. Is it sexist that men take longer to poop? Can't wait to hear your answers. Bye. I just have to jump in here to say I think it's very interesting that this is question number two. (laughs) (laughs) Good one, June. Um, June, you've said that English folks 
take particular interest in questions of the bathroom and the bottom. So I'll That's let you right. go first on this. We are a little obsessed with the bathroom <laughs> and the bottom. I hope our, yes, our producer, Sarah, is nodding. She agrees with me. So, yeah, here's the thing. I myself love, love, there is nothing, really, almost nothing. I'm, I'm serious about that. That makes me happier than a really long, luxurious poop. Just hanging out, yeah, in the bathroom. That that was like the greatest thing about being uh, working from home is that you can just really enjoy your bathroom time. I love it. There are a few things in life that I enjoy more than a really long time in the bathroom, and that's maybe that's too much information. But I'm telling you, I love (laughs) it. I think it's just enough information. So I say. You know, okay, yeah, it's true. It's, this is gendered because men often, you know, this is a theme of this this episode that like men often are able to kind of opt out, like whatever. I, I don't have kids. I don't have that many responsibilities. I can spend 25 minutes in the bathroom. I know a lot of women can't, but um, I think I would rather work for a world in which everyone can take 25 minutes in the bathroom. <laughs> that is my goal. I'm actually for 20, 2020. That's going to be my my big um, my cause. Uh, it's just to make more bathroom time for everyone. So it's sexist if it means that you're opting out of your responsibilities, if you're putting emotional labor on someone else or just labor. But no, man, it's not sexist. It's fantastic. <laughs> so I did a little lit review mm. and looked at some studies about uh, bowel function. Mm. And I learned some really interesting facts. So one study found that normal bowel function, that is to say, you know, regular poops, whatever that means for you, doctors usually say between three a day and three a week is normal. Three uh, a day? Only three. <laughs> that's, that's the higher end, June. Right. Don't yuck no, anyone's no, yums. No, no. Um, normal bowel function is enjoyed by less than half the population, and younger women are especially disadvantaged. A third of women poop less often than daily, and 1% poop once a week or less. I know. It's incredible. Another thing I learned, women have, you know, and, and this is all general. Obviously, everybody is different. But in general, women tend to have wider pelvises. They have a couple more internal organs in there, like the uterus. Uh, Their colons are longer and lower. And men have more rigid abdominal walls that help push poop through or food through, I guess. So this all works together to make the passage of of poop more challenging for women. I am not positive that whether that means women just poop less or if it means that, you know, women are more constipated so they have to take longer on the toilet. But that information contradicts a a little bit what I've heard anecdotally from my colleagues who I polled, the vast majority of whom uh, said that if they're in a relationship with one man and one woman, as God intended (laughs) – the man takes longer to poop because he's just hanging out in there, not because anything about his body is making him take longer to poop. Um, and I, one man I work with, I'm not going to say his name, said he believes, and I think this is a little bit of a generous interpretation, but it's a little bit understandable. Uh, he thinks that men are worse at voicing their emotional needs or admitting that they need to be alone and recharge. Shutting yourself in the bathroom fulfills that need without you having to say, hey, I could use a little alone time. 
I'm I'm not sure where I land on the sexist thing yet, but this is the information I have, and I'm going to wait to hear what Marsha and Nicole say before I make up my mind. Oh, this question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm making no statements about my own marriage, but this is what I will say. <laughs> I think that this is a wonderful example of where biology and culture meet. And so I do wonder if some of the dietary habits that um, men form as uh, in their adolescence has an impact on their ability to um, poop later in life. And the reason I say this as someone who has an older brother and lots of cousins who like we're into competitive eating with their friends for no reason. I think that some of it is about how men approach consuming foods and the havoc those foods will then um, deploy on their colons. So some of this I think is dietary. Um, But I also think that um, when I think of the really feminized careers like teaching or nursing. And when women say things like, I don't even have time to go to the bathroom during the day. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a socialization of getting in there in and out quickly because of the number of tasks that you have ahead. So I think that this is a merger of two cultural issues that I may have observed in my own life that I don't know if it's sexist necessarily, but it is gendered and structural. Yes. So I definitely think it's gendered. I remembered when um, I lived with one of my ex-boyfriends, he literally took a slice of pizza into the bathroom. (laughs) Is that when you guys broke up? (laughs) Unfortunately, no. But I was like, what are you doing? Why are you taking food into the bathroom? He's like, I don't know how long I'm going to be in there. Just like, so you okay. would have time to fully digest your last <laughs> meal, poop it out, and eat another meal. And he was a very, like, very slim guy. So I guess that's part of why he was so skinny. Like, as soon as he would evacuate, he would just, like, put something else in. I don't know. Um, so I do think this is gendered. And I do I agree with Marsha that women um, typically have not had the chance to use the, the bathroom uh, thoroughly <laughs> or in peace. I've seen so many videos uh, on Facebook, you know, moms showing mm. whether they can't even go to the bathroom. There's a little hand under the door from, you know, their children, like, you know, saying, Mom, what are you doing? Or uh, there was one recently I saw where the little kid um, was like, Oh, you're taking so long. Do you want some snacks? And I like pushed oh, some God. snacks under the door for their mom. I don't know why I'm focusing on. Was that your ex boyfriend's kid? <laughs> yeah, focusing on food in the bathroom. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that men, you know, if, you know, again, to do some generalization, Men probably have such terrible diets where they're not eating the vegetables that they should be. So um, maybe they're taking longer in the bathroom, uh, like Marsha pointed out. I, again, think that they're just kind of escaping and they get allowed that bit of peace more so than Mm -hmm. women do. Um, But... I am also kind of fascinated with going to the bathroom because I have IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. So I am like constantly looking Mm. for ways to make sure everything is operating Mm -hmm. the way it's Mm -hmm. supposed to. 
I have a squatty potty. Oh, nice. Mm. I've wanted Which one. is like this little step stool thing that you can put in front of your feet. So it raises your knees and has everything like elevated in a certain way that helps everything just come out very easily and much more quickly. I love it. It's to the point now that when I go to like if I'm traveling and I'm in a hotel, I obviously can't take my squatty potty with me, <laughs> but I'll use the hotel um, trash can, the bathroom oh, nice. trash can and like prop my feet up oh, that way God. to get some kind of elevation because it is so good. I need it. Um, and if, you know, the actual squatty potties are like 20 bucks. So if that's too much for you, you can just go and get like a little step stool or phone books. Phone books. <laughs> I don't even know if they yeah, make they those in June. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I still have some in my apartment because I never clear it up. Yeah. Or like the little, you know, like the little step stools for kids when they're like brushing their teeth at the sink and some, or whatever. That really helps. I would encourage anybody, um, whatever their gender, to use that when they go to the restroom. Also, it's really not good to stay on the toilet that long because your body thinks that it's still having to push out and it can um, you can end up with hemorrhoids. So if you're doing that, if you're sitting on the toilet for like 30 minutes, an hour, stop. <laughs> <laughs> We're all poop experts around we here. We are. <laughs> so I do think this is gendered. Um, and I guess I could say that it's sexist. Um, but again, I think if we know that they're spending this time in order so that their wives or their partners can take over the responsibilities that they're avoiding. I think that's what's make that's what makes it sexist, but this is definitely gendered behavior. Yeah. I just have to jump in here to say that I have been looking at squatty potties forever and I didn't get one because I thought it went on the toilet seat. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> in front of the toilet seat. Yeah. yeah. Now I understand. I, like, I just come not picturing it. Uh, somebody in my family, I forget if it was my parents or my sister, somebody got it as a gag gift. Mm. And then everyone else in the family liked using it when they visited so much that now almost everybody in the family has their own squatty potty. Yeah. <laughs> Except amazing. for me. I haven't gotten one yet, but I probably should. Um, uh, I, I will say I think everybody deserves time to unplug, relax, whether that's in the bathroom or whether it's not. I think if men are getting to, you know, unplug and unload on the toilet, women should get to do the same thing elsewhere. If they don't choose to do that in the bathroom, that's fine. But I do think this, like you, June, I think this is one of those situations uh, where unlike, you know, being very overly polite and enthusiastic in the workplace where I think men could stand to be more like women Mm -hmm. instead of women more like men. I think this is one situation where perhaps women could stand to learn from men and claim that time for themselves. I, uh, uh, yes, uh, that's a point very well made. And I, I just, uh, since I overshared earlier, I will just overshare and say um, that I I think for me, um, it's a sign of like my Life, my lifetime of bourgeoisification, because like I grew up with, I grew up in a household without an indoor bathroom, and now like the oh, height wow. of luxury is to be able yeah. to like spend yeah. time in a bathroom. Mm, my God, I can just seat. be in here, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think uh, that uh, my God, it's all about toilets. I'm telling you, man, it's the most important room in the house. You deserve it, June. You deserve I know, it. <laughs> right? All right, this is going to be hard. Thumbs mm. up or thumbs down? Is it sexist? Because I agree, it's gendered. Yeah, mm. it is. I'm going to say it's gendered, but not necessarily sexist. It's sexist if if people are using it, actually could be men or women, to avoid responsibilities. But just if if you're free and you can, you know, and you enjoy it, go for it. So I'm going to say thumbs down, not sexist. All right, Marsha. I'm going to give it a halfway thumbs. 
<laughs> now we're just getting back no. to the <laughs> 10 point scale. <laughs> no movement of the thumbs, but I'm going to encourage everyone to eat some vegetables and <laughs> consider that a strategy. <laughs> Nicole? Uh, I'm going to give this a thumbs down, not sexist, but still heavily gendered. I'm with you. Thumbs down. All right. So very gendered, maybe a little bit sexist. Men eat your sturdy greens and or, you know, women take a phone in there every now and then. Take some time for yourself. <laughs> wow. It, we clearly love bathroom humor around here, which we're in luck. Our next question is also about the toilet. <laughs> Let's hear it. Hey, The Waves. My name is Laura in Canada, and I love listening to the show. My question is, uh, I used to work in a small office where there were only a few people, and pretty much everyone except me was a man. We all shared a bathroom, and sometimes I'd go in and the toilet seat would be up, and I'd get kind of annoyed at this, but then I'd catch myself, and I'd think, okay, well, most people here are guys. It's almost more efficient for everyone to leave the toilet seat up because that's the toilet state most people in this office require. So my question is, is it sexist to put the toilet seat down in a majority male environment? Is it internally sexist of me to expect that? Thanks so much, and uh, have a wonderful new year. Bye. This is a really interesting question. So the question is, is it sexist to put the toilet seat down if you're surrounded by men? That's kind of a new twist on the, the you know, should men always put the toilet seat down question. What do y'all think? Um, I kind of think yes. I kind of, I think that it would, I think it is excessive to expect all the men in the office to cater to the one woman in this regard. Um, I, but I do think that maybe they should, if possible, and obviously I don't know what kind of office this was, if this is like a nonprofit situation where you know, funds are limited um, because I, you know, I would say don't put the toilet seat down or expect it to be down. But I think that they should still also supply feminine products <laughs> if possible. So um, I guess I'm a f- interesting that you said feminine. Products. I know. I was I'm, I'm, coming up. Yes, later yes, in I know. Episode. I'm very like <laughs> 1950 right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I but I do. Uh, I just feel like it it kind of borders on some sort of expected chivalry that gets really messy and you know it you know when it comes to like feminism and what to expect in the workplace and having these men cater to her in this particular kind of way it feels really tricky to me so I but I do think that it's a little much to expect them to cater to her in like this one particular area of the bathroom etiquette my view of toilets is that whoever is going to use it, whether it's for men's toilets or women's toilets, mixed toilets, whatever, the resting position, the proper resting position of a toilet is with the toilet seat down. And so that is what it should be. Now, this has come up before in a previous call-in show with, uh, with Hannah and, and uh, Noreen. And, we, and there, was, there was some disagreement from listeners about this, but I don't care. That's what the proper position should be. And furthermore, I did some uh, research on this. I spoke with my friend Rose George, who wrote the great book, The Big Necessity, The Unmentionable World of Human Waste and Why It Matters, which is largely about toilets. And she said that, you know, putting the seat down is polite. That's, that's you know, one thing. But also, in a situation where there is a lid, so, you know, probably not in a, 
in a workplace bathroom because where there's not typically a lid. Uh, but where there is a lid, the lid should always be put down because a flush mm-hmm. sprays droplets around the room. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you might get fecal particles on your toothbrush. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> by extension, toilet seat too. Just keep it all down. Get in the habit. Everybody put it all down. I also think the suggestion that, you know, toilet seats should be left up is poop erasure mm-hmm. because men also need to sit down <laughs> yeah, to poop. Yeah. It's mixed use. And who knows yeah. when they're going into the bathroom whether they're going to poop or yeah. not. I But I also think that the gender makeup of any given office should not – I think there needs to be one rule for everything yeah. regardless of the gender makeup of, you know, who's using the bathroom. That said, the most efficient thing mm-hmm. to do is for every person who uses the bathroom to just leave the toilet seat however they used it so that it's, you know, maybe the next person who comes in will use it in that position. Maybe they won't. But if you change it, then you're definitely touching the toilet seat. And I think the goal should be to have as few people touching the toilet seat as possible because it's disgusting. And I will say objectively, the view of the toilet with the toilet seat up is always grosser. There's always something disgusting on the rim of the toilet. I'm sorry to people who have to look at it like that. Um, but I think – so basically I'm of three minds on this, <laughs> and I'm not sure what I think. <laughs> um, but no, I don't think it's sexist for this person to put the toilet seat down in the majority male environment. Marsha, what do you think? I, I would prefer no one work – communally so everyone can just use their bathroom (laughs) after this conversation with their squatty potty but i do believe that the proper way that god intended toilets to be is with it fully lidded and perhaps some crime scene scene (laughs) tape over it uh, that gets redone every time someone uses it i don't think it is an unreasonable expectation that a toilet seat is down in an office i think that's just proper form and that it is not sexist to not want to see a toilet seat up because I find it vile. Okay, so the question, is it sexist to put the toilet seat down in a majority male environment? And is it sexist for the listener to expect that it should be down? I'm going to say no. Thumbs down. I agree. It is not sexist to put the toilet seats down. So uh, not sexist, toilet seat down. I also think that you've made a very good point, Christina, mm. about the fact that I know rare <laughs> that um, that even men's bathrooms are mixed use in terms of when you're like actually you know using a toilet. So that it's just like again, I just want to reiterate: everyone put the seat down. That's that's the rule. Just be considerate. It's not about like efficiency is interesting, but come on, put it down. I'm still going to say it's sexist. I will be the lone, um, I don't know, bathroom, whatever. I don't even know what I would be in this situation. Um, I still think it's it's uh, sexist to expect that, although I do understand the point about no one wants to touch a toilet seat, and I can only imagine how filthy the toilet seat is in a majority male office. Um and just like having to use that bathroom, period, is just going to be awful. Um, so, but I still think that, I don't know, I, I think the expectations are unrealistic here uh, in this scenario. So, thumbs up, it's sexist. Well, maybe it, in Canada, men are more considered in the bathroom. Who knows? <laughs> maybe. Um, what do you think, Marsha? 
Um, thumbs down, not sexist. And I'm going to counter my perspective from the last segment and maybe encourage everyone to be constipated and not to use the bathroom at work. (laughs) (laughs) Save all of your long, uh, luxurious poops for home. Um, Just kidding. Go when you need to go. Okay. Great question. So happy we got the chance to answer that one. Time for our next one. Hi. So... It's sexist when husbands make those self-deprecating, faux, humble jokes about how the wife outranks him in the home or comments like, my wife overrules me all the time or my wife puts me in my place. And they're intended to convey respect for the wife, but they come off like, Of course, she is of lower authority. Thus, it's funny when I talk about her as having greater authority. And it also plays into the nagging wife kind of narrative. However, I have found myself sometimes using those jokes to refer to my husband. I'm gay, and I have a husband. Is it sexist that I use those jokes to describe my husband? So happy to have this question uh, because I love questions that force queer people and gay people to think about how like heteros narratives and jokes made for heterosexual people apply to us. So I'm going to go first on this one. Um, I do think those jokes are sexist because, you know, as our listener puts very nicely, it only works as a joke because it's playing on the idea that, you know, women aren't in charge, men have the final word. So if you're saying like, oh, haha, she really wears the pants here, you're kind of joking that she doesn't. And and that's why it's funny. Um However, I do think this is one of those things that gay people get to opt out Mm -hmm. of the sexism of, you know, the sexism of heterosexual relationship narratives don't have to apply to us unless you are calling your husband your wife and joking that he's a subservient woman, which I do think, you know, some gay men sometimes do, you know, refer to themselves and and other gay men as using female pronouns and or using she pronouns just as a joking, in a joking way, like sometimes that can veer into sexism. But I think there's a way that remaking these kind of hetero marriage jokes in our own image can be subversive. Um, you know, there's also the the possibility that if it's the more masculine partner constantly demeaning a more feminine partner in this relationship, in this sort of like, isn't it cute that he thinks he's in charge kind of a way, that can be I guess, sexist in its own way, unless it's consensual or unless that's your kink. But um, I'm going to say generally, no, it's not sexist. I, I, all I have to say in that is I agree with you 100%, Christina, that that, uh, that represents my views also. Hmm. You're welcome. Nicole, Marsha, do you have thoughts? And I just want to say you're allowed to disagree with us, even though you're not gay. <laughs> <laughs> So you want to open that possibility. <laughs> so I think that it is still sexist because it rests on something that isn't just sexist in my view, but also undermines the strength of relationships. So this kind of like who's the boss Ooh. in this relationship, I think is one toxic idea that 
hurts all relationships because it orients our thinking into power and control as the ultimate prize in the kind of mutual understanding between people. And so while I think it's important to hack sexism and hack heterosexism in various communities, I do wonder if that kind of dynamic is always read through a lens of women and men's romantic relationships. And so it can never be as subversive as desired. And more importantly, though, I think anytime we fall into these narratives of like what relationships are or aren't, I think it hurts all of our relationships because it creates a set of expectations of what dynamics should be versus the dynamics that we discover. Wow. Um. <laughs> Welcome to your TED Talk. <laughs> Welcome to Middle Age, everyone. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Nicole. Yeah, so I, I do think that it's still sexist. And my feeling was that if it, even though this um, the caller is um, referring to his husband that way, I think it's still kind of playing into this um really outdated notion of well, which one is the husband and which one is the wife kind of thing. I mean, obviously, I don't know the relationship. And like you said, Christina, who maybe is there's like a more masculine or more feminine kind of um, dynamic going on here or whatever. I don't know. But that was my first thought. And that I felt like that was um, perhaps not as subversive as, as it could be. Um, so I do find this uh, sexist. The scenario is sexist because, yes, it's playing on the idea that when it's a husband talking about his wife, obviously it's like, well, she has no power anywhere else, so I'm going to give her the power in the home. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, I don't know the dynamic here with the caller, but that was my first instinct to be like, well, yeah, it's still sexist. Like, just because... Um, you know, it's, you know, two men doesn't mean that there's still not a power dynamic that's mm -hmm. happening some kind of way. Like if, if his husband is a stay at home husband or stay at home dad or whatever, and maybe the caller is a person that goes out and is, you know, has a nine to five job or is the is a breadwinner. That could be strange, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. um I guess I, because I don't know too much about it, I'm hesitant to say, no, it's fine that, you know, they're playing with uh, these uh, heteronormative ideas. So I'm still going to stick with my instinct and say that it's sexist um, because it just doesn't seem to, it doesn't really seem to uplift the partner in mm -hmm. any way. Hmm. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, this is the only thing that you have right now is this power, this domestic power, and that's it. Which is still good. That's still, a, you know, not to downplay. Yeah, but how is that sexist? <sighs> it might be, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I, I, I can see how it could be, you know, a, a, a bad relationship dynamic or demeaning or something. But I don't know that it can be sexist if it's between two men. I could see that there's a possibility, a potential for it to be so. If it's not sort of conscious role playing, but rather that the partner, that one partner is doing exactly the same thing uh, to his male partner that a male partner would do to his female partner. Like it, it, you can still replay those dynamics and they would still be sexist dynamics, even if both were men like that. That makes sense to me. For me, like so much of this is in the tone. And I think the fact that this caller mm -hmm. so 
um, accurately and so astutely sort of define the nature of why that particular kind of, you know, what sometimes people think they're like being right on and Mm -hmm. like, dude, you're not. Like the fact that he so clearly understands why that kind of banter is sexist makes me think that in in their the own relation, he doesn't mention whether his husband does it to him too. Um, like I think that the awareness means that for, for these people, it's almost certainly not sexist. But I I take your point, Nicole, that like and 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 Marcia, that if someone hears this, like you know maybe in this relationship, everybody's read in, everybody gets all the significance and the, and the freighting of of these this kind of language and this kind of interplay. But what if somebody else overhears it and thinks, oh, look at that, like that's happening with them too. So uh, yeah, it depends on the tone. It depends on the relationship. It depends on the circumstances. But I think it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I get the feeling that it isn't in this particular case. Yeah, so maybe it's not sexist in this specific scenario, but I do feel like that there is some sort of... um, I don't know, inherited bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say inherited, just like mm-hmm. there's still just like, I don't it's know. Like legacy bias. Yeah, legacy bias um, mm-hmm. wrapped around it. But um, so, okay, so maybe technically it is not sexist, but there's still something that obviously um, the caller feels this way. There's mm-hmm. still something that's like off kilter about mm-hmm. it. So, um, yeah, so technically, no, it's not sexist. I will, I will give it a thumbs down. But uh, maybe the person, the caller needs to kind of keep pushing at that, kind of peeling mm-hmm. it back and examining, mm-hmm. you know, his own discomfort with it. Mm. Interesting. I also wonder if it's the caller's husband who might have brought this up. Mm. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think this is a really great question. I'm still going to say thumbs down, no, not sexist. Me too. I will say thumbs up sexist with the caveat that the listener seems really cool and I'd love to have him and his husband over for dinner to talk more about this. Um, (laughs) So that's where I'll land. Nicole. Yeah. Okay. So I've been convinced thumbs down, not sexist, but like got like, I don't know, a middle finger kind of also maybe (laughs) raised a little bit like, (laughs) but watch that. All right. All right. Thank you for that question. Our next one is particularly juicy and possibly dramatic. Let's hear it. I am wondering, is it sexist that any man is running for the 2020 presidential election? If any of those Democratic men really cared about equality when they realized there's never been a female VP or a female president, shouldn't they just get on board with supporting the qualified female candidates that are in the race. Thanks. This is a question that I've thought about a lot this campaign cycle. So thank you to this listener for laying it out there. Uh, who wants to go first on this? My answer is very short. It's just yes. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> yep. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, I think that the questioner put it very well. If you believe you know, that it's necessary, that it would be good for the nation, that it would be good for the world if after, what are we on now, 230, 40 years of of, uh, having presidents, we should have a woman president and that there are multiple, in this case, qualified uh, female candidates. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you stirring things up? No, actually, though, I will qualify that. 
I only really feel that way about the white men. Like, mm-hmm. okay, we've had one black president, but, you know, <laughs> we could do with another one. So, like, I don't feel that way about Cory Booker. I don't feel that way about Julian Castro. But I, all those white men, like, get the hell off the stage. It's really, like, it's it's not time for you right now. You've had, you've, you've had your time. Okay. Before I get to trying to figure out if it's sexist, I, again, feel some kind of way that, the only way we would have a female president mm. is if a man allowed it to happen, yeah. kind of, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if, if, a, if a woman was the only choice. Yeah, yeah, you know, or just, you know, giving somebody, you know, I stepped aside so that you could move forward. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, th- these men, these male candidates would get, like, their boost from that. Like, right. um, yeah. so I feel, I don't know, I don't, I don't necessarily like that scenario. Um I don't think they should do it in public. I just think they should. Well, see, they how would they, they get credit for it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they're definitely going to. <laughs> they're definitely going to say, "I stepped aside so that you know, yes. whatever." Um, so I, I don't. Know. I think it. Um, I, I don't. I don't know how to answer this question actually, um, because I feel like even if we. Even if that happened, where all the men were like, "You know what? I'm. I'm going to recuse myself or whatever," and allow Elizabeth Warren to, you know, get into the White House. Again, there's just, I feel like there would be so much um, weight on allow and, you know, whatever um, that would, excuse me, it would really just kind of, I don't know, not taint, but there would be like a little shadow over the win if that happened. Um, So I don't know that I would want this scenario to happen at all. Um, I think the, you know, if the male candidates are going to step aside, they should step aside because they're, they suck (laughs) and they, you know, they're just in it because they have the money. Um, and they're just trying to like boost their, um, reputation in some way, their, their professional, um, career or whatever. So I I don't know that I want to say that this is sexist for men to be running. Um, I'm going to keep thinking about it. Mm. I'm going to channel like uh, 12 years of Catholic school, and I'm going to say that freedom is not license, meaning that just because you can run for president doesn't mean you should. And I think at the heart of this question is, how do these men who are running for president, who have limited experience, their inability to see themselves as um, less than or their inability to connect to a critical mass of voters. Like there's just so many people in this race who just aren't good. And I think the way that the lack of self-awareness is linked to sexism is their inability to compare themselves to women and be honest in their assessment is, I think, at the heart of this question. So I think there's something really valuable in that question. And so I do think it's sexist. I completely agree with that point, mm-hmm. Marcia, that a lot of the unqualified men are there because of sexism. Um, but as much as I want to say yes to this question, I don't think I can just because I don't think that we need to put having a female president above everything else. There are definitely a, a few women in this race that I would be cool with as president and certainly the, who are more than competent to serve as president. But I I I think that there are a lot of men in the race who are great and who are bringing up important issues. Uh, Julian Castro on the poor and on immigration, Cory Booker with his baby bonds, 
uh, Jay Inslee with climate change. Bernie Sanders has pushed the party left. And there are also women and men across, you know, the ideological spectrum who represent a variety of races and ethnicities and sexual orientations and religions who also haven't had representation in the office of the president yet. Like June said, you know, we have had very little representation of anything in the presidency. So I I think that there are, you know, not everybody prioritizes gender identity when they're thinking about representation. And I think a lot of people think that there are some men in the race who would make life better for women than some of the women in the race. Uh, as for vice president, Yes, they have to pick a woman. Any man who uh, gets the nomination has to pick a woman if they want to lead the Democratic Party, which is majority women and driven by women's activism at this point in, you know, and and has been throughout history. Uh, but especially in this moment, it's unconscionable not to have a woman on the ticket uh, and, you know, a gender equal cabinet and what have you. So I will say that it, there there has to be a woman vice president uh, if there's a male nominee. People have made very good points. I will just say that when Mike Bloomberg or even Bill de Blasio, who's married to a black woman and has a black family, got into the race, I just thought, what the hell are you thinking? Why? Yeah. Why? <laughs> like, you, we do not need you. We do not need you in this race. And I agree. Like, of course, it's not just a woman. But when there are very qualified women and a range of them, just get off there. Get out of it. I, I don't. I, whenever I watch one of these debates, and and I agree, Christina, like Jay Inslee, sure, he was making good points, but like, I don't need it right now. I just want some, I mean, and of course, it's the marginal men that really get on my nerves who are like, yeah. they're just so sure that they're entitled to be up there. Like, just bugger off. Or Joe Biden, who doesn't oh. seem like he's able to string together three sentences anymore. Don't stop but me who, on him. You know, <laughs> women are supporting by pretty wide margins. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Um, I guess we'll do a thumbs up, thumbs down on this question that we could make a whole episode out of. <laughs> um, I'm going to say the male ego is sexist, but the fact that men are running is not. Thumbs down. I would agree with that. I would. I. I. Uh, yes. Ditto. <laughs> yeah. Same. Uh, thumbs down. It's not sexist. Uh you know what? You've convinced me. Thumbs down, but face palm for the state of democracy. <laughs> Word. Agreed. We lost Marsha on the line, so we're going to have to finish this episode with just the three of us. Do you think we can handle it? I think so. We'll make do. <laughs> All right. Let's get to our next question. My four-year-old daughter, she likes dresses and sparkles, among hundreds of other things. And I've overheard my husband describe her to other people as a real girly girl. Is it sexist? Thank you so much. In the course of thinking about this question, I convinced myself, I think, that it's not sexist. I started out thinking 100%, I'm so sorry your husband does this. It might be worth talking to him about this. But now I'm not so sure because I know that it's it's okay to say that things that are stereotypically feminine are stereotypically feminine. You know, we have the words feminine and masculine for a reason, and they do signify things, and people are allowed to identify with those things. But I will say when kids are involved, it can be more complicated, and we should be more careful because their identities and their relationships to those identities and to uh, their 
gendered expectations are still evolving. So I I also wonder about the context in which he's commenting on the sort of gendered nature of her preferences. What do you guys think? My first instinct was to say it is sexist um, because I know um, when I was younger, my older sister was the quote unquote girly girl. And then I came along and people were like, well, she doesn't like the dresses. And, you know, you know, my sister loves makeup and all that kind of stuff. She's very feminine in that regard. But for me, because I did not express my femininity in the same way, it caused such, you know, confusion in my family about, like, well, what's hmm. happening with Nicole? Um, so I, I kind of, you know, for the sake of the, the daughter of the caller, I wish that the father wouldn't do that because it does kind of, um, you know... It, the expectations of what that mean um, can be a problem. And if the daughter was anything like me, she may, you know, just purposely try to push back on that, even mm-hmm. though, yes, she really does like the dresses and stuff like that. Maybe she just doesn't want to be considered a girly girl. And the, the pressure that comes with that, like when she gets older and realizes the pressure that comes with that, um, maybe she'll resent that. So I, I do think that it is, um, it's, Again, I guess, you know, we'll keep using this, but it's, again, very gendered behavior uh, or expectations of gendered behavior for um, this little girl. And maybe, the, you know, the father should stop. But I don't know if it's sexist um, right now without more context. Yeah. I, funnily enough, I think I went on the opposite journey from you guys. I came in thinking, I don't know if this is sexist. I've heard so many friends who are very right on and who are like taking all the steps to raise their daughters in a very sort of ungendered way or avoiding those gendered girly stereotypes and then not every single time but so often you hear they're just really into princesses and sparkles and I you know it's what they want and and what you know I so I've I'm so familiar with that story that I felt you know it's just something that happens and it would be wrong to, to push too hard against that because you know as someone who always like was not doing the gender presentation that like adults wanted I know that can be really uncomfortable and really hard and it makes you feel very awkward so I don't want that to be around any kind of gender situation to be like focusing on this thing which is just not relevant when you're a kid just who cares but there's something in this question where the the caller says of her daughter she likes dresses and sparkles among hundreds of other things so as you guys mm-hmm. have said, like, I do think, I don't know, I don't feel it's ridiculous to say, I think somebody should talk to this guy, just father, because that sounds so condescending. But it does seem like it's very reductive of all the things that this child is interested in to, to, for that to be the one that is kind of glommed onto feels like, I don't know if it's harmful, I don't know if it's dangerous, but it just feels like... You know, maybe maybe just kind of mix it up even. Call her a girly girl once, but call her a, you know, whatever the other interests are. I wonder um, if he is saying this because he's proud yeah. and then yeah. that becomes yeah. strange. You know, like, why mm-hmm. are you so proud that she is a princess? Yeah. You know, um, what does that mean for you? Yep. So I think, you know, that we would need to examine, I mean, not to do a therapy session on the <laughs> On the this unknown person. <laughs> but again, it's just kind of like, you know, trying to get to the heart of the matter if this is sexist. Um, I'm, I'm going to say no. But again, um, maybe there is something starting to, um, you know, get into the land of sexist. Mm. 
I think I've gone back to the yes, it's sexist <laughs> because the you know we we can use a term like manly man and everyone knows what that means and I feel like now that term is sort of used as a joke mm-hmm. to you know make fun of a man who's so uh, who has twenty five flannel shirts in, in his wardrobe right <laughs> um, but for a child mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary to and I think it's harmful mm-hmm. to associate girliness and the quality of girlhood with certain, you know, stereotypically feminine things. And and I agree with you, Nicole, that it does seem like there's a way that people can say this that is like, oh, I'm proud of my child for being gender typical. So yes, I'm going to say that it's sexist. And I hope that this segment encourages the person who sent this question in to feel empowered to talk to her husband about this. Or or just, you know, maybe they've already talked about it and she can play this segment as a, a way to back her up on it. <laughs> June? Uh, yes. Uh, thumbs up. It's sexist. And um, yeah, I just hope that there can be like conversation with the husband, like with other. I think this is not that unusual. This is not like yeah. a rare occurrence or a rare thing for parents to kind of take pride in. And it's really it shouldn't be. Okay, so yes, I'm going to amend <laughs> mine because I keep waffling, right? Because I like I again, my first instinct was yes. So I guess I'm going to stick with my first instinct and Give it a thumbs up. Yes, it's sexist. And, you know, right. have a talk. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is a unanimously sexist occurrence. Calling a kid a girly girl who likes hundreds of things. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, perhaps it's weird that we've decided that thumbs up is sexism. Like, <laughs> good for sexism. <laughs> it's, it's sexist. <laughs> really, Three we're just thumbs saying, up. yes, it's sexist. <laughs> Three thumbs up for sexism. Uh Yeah, we should have thought about that before setting up that system. All right, this is our last question. Let's hit it. It came from email, so I'm going to narrate. I work at a nonprofit, and we often have female clients who come in and need basic clothing and hygiene products, including bras, underwear, tampons, and pads. Both my boss and one of my supervisees are uncomfortable using those words. For example, my supervisee will come into my office and say that a client needs unmentionables or sanitary products. I will respond by saying that bras and underwear are in fact mentionable, and he will need to mention what his clients need before I can give it to them. My approach is somewhat less confrontational with my boss, more along the lines of playing dumb when he asks for hygiene products until he says tampon or pad. (laughs) Is the fact that they're uncomfortable using basic nouns sexist, or am I being an asshole by doing something I know makes them uncomfortable? P.S. If this throws any additional light on the situation, my boss has also repeatedly mentioned that he grew up with three sisters, but they never talked about, quote unquote, all that. (laughs) This is hilarious. I love the subtle resistance that this listener is staging in her workplace. I do think that the um, listener is being an asshole, but it's a justified (laughs) asshole (laughs) Um, because you should be these grown men should be able to say, even though I used feminine products earlier, um, these grown (laughs) men should be able to express what their clients need, particularly as their their needs are different and you don't know what all you know, what all they need. I remember one time I was at a hotel and I got my period suddenly and um, there was no 
like drugstore nearby. And by the time I got it, it was very late. So it was just it would have been too much to try to find a store. So I called down to the front desk because it was a very fancy hotel. Right. And I called down to the front desk and I said, do you have any feminine products? (laughs) Right. And the man, it was a man who answered the phone. He sent up one tampon (laughs) and two makeup remover wipes. As if you could put those in your underwear, or you just thought like feminine products meant makeup, meant things to do with makeup. I just was like, thank you, (laughs) you know, like I just and I just kind of you know one tampon. Yeah, I just had to use a whole lot of toilet tissue um, until the morning when I could go out and get something. But anyway, so men should be able to say, you know, whatever words they need to say because. It's just because you say tampon doesn't mean you're gonna get a period. <laughs> like what? Like I don't know what the fear is here. Do you know that for a fact, Nicole? <laughs> no, you know what? I don't. <laughs> um, I am curious whether uh, the nonprofit has any male clients and mm-hmm. whether they ever need underwear and what words the supervisee and boss use to describe those products. Um, I mean these these words aren't even. talking about parts of the human body. It's not like, you know, uh, oh, we need like a vagina cover or like a tit sling or something. It's like (laughs) pad, tampon, like, and even if those were the acceptable words Mm -hmm, to use to mm -hmm. describe those products, if that, if your job includes talking about those products, you should be able to say it. It also, you know, if one of the clients heard the men talking about their needs this way, mm-hmm. it could possibly make them feel, you know, shame, ashamed yeah. about their bodies yeah. and their needs. Yeah. On the other hand, maybe the women are embarrassed asking for these products, and so they say feminine products. I'm not sure, but my instinct says, yes, sexist. Yeah, I think that shame, which you just mentioned, is really relevant here, Christina, because I think in a nonprofit situation, the specifics of this situation, it sounds like These are people who just need access to these things uh, in order to take part in society. And we know that it is it can be very hard if you do not have money to find ways of getting these very essential things. And certainly in the developing world, women don't get to take part in society. Girls don't get to go to school because they don't have tampons and pads. Like, I don't think we're at that stage here. But like, these are not just like things that can be... uh, you know, that are optional. These are really necessary things. And so it's very important just from a like a messaging point of view, as well as a, this service is really needed for there not for this to not to be any sense of shame around these things. No, I'm not saying that like it is weird. I don't know why, but I do find it slightly embarrassing to talk about these things. Um, for example, uh, sometimes I watch YouTube videos, as you know, and like when people are just like, showing their 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 like their calendars women will say oh i use this page to track my cycle and i'm always like oh my god you're showing that like so i certainly have those um those like innate uh responses which i think is ridiculous there is nothing shameful about this there is nothing embarrassing about this however i accept that many of us uh not accepting myself do like it's a little mm, it shouldn't be but it is but the only way it cannot be and it shouldn't be is just to as you said, Nicole, yeah, be an asshole. Your, your boss needs you to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. It's really necessary in this situation. They are being sexist and they need correcting. 
And especially if you're working in the provision of social right. services, right. it's right. incumbent upon you to yep. make people feel as comfortable exactly. and not ashamed as possible. Right. Exactly. All right. I think we all agree, yes, this is sexist. Yes. Good on you, listener, yeah. for what you're doing in your workplace. Thank you to our listeners for all these great questions. This is my favorite episode of the year because we actually get to hear what our listeners sound like. It makes me feel close to you all. Thank you for sending them in. I just want to remind our listeners who aren't Slate Plus members, if you liked this episode, you can get an Is It Sexist segment every episode. All you have to do is visit slate.com slash thewavesplus to start your free two-week trial or just (laughs) sign the heck up. I've never heard you more persuasive, Christina. (laughs) Now we're just going to wrap up with our recommendations before our Slate Plus bonus segment. Nicole, what do you have? Um, I have a collection of short stories by Karen Russell, and it's called Orange World and Other Stories. And um, the stories, they're not scary, but they're definitely a little creepy sometimes. Um, Like one example is called um, Bald Girl, a Romance. And this 15-year-old boy falls in love with this I think it's like a 2,000-year-old body that he pulls from a bog. And um, then there's another story called The Prospectors where these two young women at the um, around the Great Depression, they get stuck at this lodge that is filled with ghosts. um, And they're trying to figure out how to get off of the lodge because they had to go up a ski lift to get to it. Uh, It's in Oregon, and they get stuck. Anyway, so it's not, I wouldn't say scary, but again, it's just kind of like this creepy, there's some menace involved. Mm -hmm. But Karen Russell is really good. She writes a lot of kind of like Southern Gothic, uh, creepy, haunting story stuff. And um, sometimes they're funny, but in a weird way. But she has a, also a really great um, way with language. Mm-hmm. Like in the story with the girls stuck on the um, ghost mountain, um, they talk about how they were stealing from people. And Karen says, their fingers spidering through wallets. And I just really love mm-hmm. that image. So mm-hmm. she's a really good writer. The book is called Orange World and Other Stories by Karen Russell. Marsha, what do you have? So my recommendation this week as the best thing I discovered as of late is a streaming television service called Pluto TV. Pluto is this strange amalgamation of networks that can be as specific as American Gladiators television or... um, a network that only shows Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen. There's also old television shows from MTV, including Cribs from the early 2000s. And it's this strange assortment of everything I watched at the beginning of the 21st century. And it's fantastic. And it is the perfect way to waste a lot of time. So I highly recommend old wedding TV shows and dating shows before The Bachelor and everything in between on Pluto TV. What a great recommendation. Wow. Love to hear about uh, an entire streaming service I've never even heard of. Amazing. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Marsha. June, what about you? Uh, I just want to talk about the two books that really stood out for me in 2019. I It's funny, in 2018, I'd been having a hard time reading. I just like the thing that I'd done my whole life. I just kind of wasn't, I just wasn't reading books. I just was like reading, I don't know, like one book a month or less. I just couldn't 
I just lost my mojo. But 2019, I read a lot of really great things. Um, and two that stuck out, one nonfiction, one fiction, was um, in the nonfiction category, Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe about the Troubles in Ireland, uh, which... You know, I lived through from a distance, I should say. I was certainly not in Ireland. But, like, I was alive and conscious and watching the news when those things happened. And uh, I just thought he captured the vibe as well as the history really well. And it's just a great book. And it's just kind of shocking. It's shocking to realize the the kind of the extent, the just the, the profundity of the destruction of uh, that happened in the Troubles. Uh, and then uh, as a work of fiction, another book by a man, uh, Middle England by Jonathan Coe, who's a writer I've been reading for a long time, but this one is really about England and what the hell led to Brexit and ultimately what the hell led to the election a couple of weeks ago in Britain. Um, but he's also a wonderful writer. He really sets up characters, some of whom appear through uh, a number of his books over a long period. Um, and that's great. And just I'm just going to throw in one more because why not? Uh, speaking of Northern <laughs> Ireland, I just love Derry Girls. You know, whenever people talk about, oh, British shows, why if only there were more more episodes? Usually I'm like, no, it's fine. They were good. You know, let's just make a few good ones. But Derry Girls is the one where I'm just like, there's only six and I've watched them. And I feel like I just sit down and start play. And then 10 minutes later, it's like, OK, you got to wait another year for more if there are going to be any more. So Derry Girls on Netflix is just amazing. And it's also set uh, in Northern Ireland a, a little later than the period of, of Say Nothing Thank you, June. I'm going to recommend, I try not to do this too often, but I'm going to recommend something from Slate. It mm. is called Lockdown. It is oh my goodness. an audio project that Slate released in late December uh, featuring interviews with kids of all ages from all over the country about their school shooting drills that they have to go through, which, you know, it's hard to find new ways to talk about the horrors of school shootings and mass shootings um, and the situation with guns in this country. And I think this project did it really well and in an, an extremely um, clarifying and uh, sort of brutal, you know, grab you by the lapels kind of a way just to hear these kids speak in their own voices about their different responses to having to go through these shooter drills in their schools. Some of them you know, are having panic attacks. Some of them sort of joke through it. Um, but I, when I think about, um, you know, gun control and, and the lack thereof in this country and the sort of political impasse that we're at, I think a lot about the people who have died or who have been injured in mass shootings. And this project really illustrated for me the the whole sort of secondary culture that is rising along with that, that it's not just about the sort of uh, human toll from people who have survived these shootings, but also the, the way kids are forced to grapple with this and the culture that these mass shootings have created in schools and, and, and what kind of a country are we when we are asking kids to practice, you know, I'm a I'm a seven year old and my teacher is asking me to find the heaviest thing in the room that I could possibly throw at a school shooter. Um, it's called Lockdown. You can find it in your podcast app on the Slate Presents feed. It's also there are transcripts available on Slate.com. I just want to jump in here to say that lots of people worked on this project, uh, including uh, two reporters and the deputy editor of the Trace, uh, who we worked with on this project. But Sarah Birmingham, who is producing this episode 
really did an amazing job yeah. working on this project. And she, you know, really put that together. There were a lot of interviews and Sara did a fantastic job of really having to listen to kids be mm-hmm. talk about the trauma. And it just sounds amazing that the, the sort of the editing in terms of the selection and making it all sound really good uh, is all down to Sarah. So well done, Sarah. Thank you. All right. That's our episode for this week. Thank you to the wonderful Sarah Burningham who produced this episode, to Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and Rosemary Belson, who also provided production assistance for this episode. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Excuse me. Oh, hold on. Sure. Hold on one second, you guys. Hi. I'm a, I'm a guest of the hotel, and I and I record a, um, a radio show, and I just need the quietest place to do it. So this is what I'm doing. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. sorry. That's okay. okay. <laughs> I just, Marcia, where are you? The, the hotel was concerned with what I was doing. <laughs> Are you in a conference room so with the with the um, coat over your head? So they're like, "What's with, going on?" This guy was like, "Why is this lady with the coat over her head?" And I I I forgot to tell the front desk I will be doing this. I think I need to just put a white flag on this recording because <laughs> now they're bringing in like equipment for something in the hotel.